0: We are in Second Kings. Just to give you some idea of what is going on up to this point in this particular chapter, we've been doing this study, this series on Elijah now for, for probably a year or so. And we don't have that much more to go, but it'll be some time since, before we finish. But more recently, King Isaiah, who was a wicked and evil king, for just a short period of time, for only about two years the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was during the days that Elijah, God's prophet, walked upon the earth, and he spoke on God's behalf. And King Ahaziah had fallen through a lattice in the floor of his palace and had become become seriously injured by that, so injured that he was in fear of his death, and so he had sent messengers not to Elijah and not to the other prophets of God in Israel and Judah, but... He sent his messengers to uh, Ekron, which is one of the Philistine cities, uh, to seek of their god, their fake god, their false god, Beelzebub, as to whether he would recover or not. God enlightened Elijah to this. Elijah intercepted them and he asked them or sent them back to King Ahaz with a simple question. And the question was this, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going uh, to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Ahaziah has taken exception to that. And what he has done is three times now he has sent a captain with 50 men. And for the first two, uh, fire from heaven came down and consumed them. They were men of arrogance and pride. Uh, they were men that, uh, in, in reality, were defiantly standing before God's man and therefore God himself. And so the fire of heaven came down and consumed them. And their men, and then this third captain was sent by Ahaziah, and his heart was very different. He had a great heart for his men. He had a great heart for himself. But it apparently, at least to some degree, we don't know how much, he had a, had a, had a heart uh, for God. He humbly came with humility, and he knelt before Elijah, and he pleaded for his life. And for the lives of his men. Now, you and I understand something that this whole story is just a microcosm of the same thing that's going on in the world with every day that passes. This is one particular story that relates to a story that you and I have seen over and over again throughout our lifetime. Now, I want you to notice something here, and that is those first captains had every opportunity to humbly come. But they did not do that. Their pride would not let them. And they suffered the consequences. We need to understand something. And that is that Elijah was not the one on trial here in the eyes of those men. God was. They weren't questioning Elijah. They were questioning the God who sent Elijah. They defiantly stood before God. Which is true of every person who denies Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They fundamentally commit the same sin. Messages like this either do one thing or the other. They either convict people or they condemn people. Verse 14. This is the captain speaking to Elijah. Behold, fire came, the third captain. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 in their 50s. But now let my life be present uh, in your sight. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think about dying. I wonder how I will die. What are going to be the, the, the situa- what's going to be the situation or the conditions of my death, the time of death? I would imagine that everyone sometime, at some time in their life maybe very often think about the same thing. I was reading this week a list of the least desirable ways of dying. You can imagine some of the things that were on that list. One was drowning, suffocation, having a long and painful death, suffering torture, starving to death, being stabbed. It's interesting. People say they would rather be, stabbed than shot, by, rather be shot by a gun than stabbed, if you can imagine that. And then there's my least favorite, was not on the list at all, and that is being eaten alive. But guess what number one was? Being burned alive. The greatest fear of death that people have is that they will die by burning. And that was exactly the fate of these 102 men up to this point. They died, which... The the kind of death that most people would say would be the most horrible kind of death to die. And we know that it's a prefiguring, a foreshadowing of eternal death that lies on the other side of this life. Described in the book of Revelation... Chapter 20, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we understand this, that unless there was some conversion that took place in the lives of some of these men at some point, then their death by fire was only the beginning of eternal death by fire. It's amazing we consider the fact that many of our brothers and sisters in the past and even in recent days have been burned at the stake. Polycarp, he was, uh, he was a disciple of the apostle John, was burned at the stake. And it's amazing when you read uh, his testimony that when they came to rest The first thing he did was invite the soldiers in and he prepared a meal for them so they would have something to eat. Just an amazing picture of grace that you find with him. One of the ones that has always stood out for me came in uh, 1556 when when Thomas Cranmer, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was burned at the stake. Because he was charged uh, with heresy by the church and convicted of heresy. He was then forced to, confine, uh, to sign a confession, which he did, but they decided they were going to execute him nonetheless. And the interesting thing about it is this is what he said just before his execution. Since my hand, the one that I wrote with, when I signed this document, since my hand offended, it first will be punished. When I come to the fire, it, will, uh, it first will be burned. And this is a description of what took place. As the fire approached him, Cranber put his right hand into the flames, keeping it there until everyone could see it burn before his body was touched. This unworthy right hand he called out before he gave up the ghost. brothers and sisters, enduring what many people would consider the worst possible kind of death because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reading something this week. When I was in high school, I had a couple of buddies, and we used to go surfing quite a bit over in Daytona. Our normal thing was worked at the same place, and we'd get off at 10 o'clock on Saturday night. We'd drive to Daytona, spend the night on the beach, and then we'd surf all day on Sunday. Uh, And we usually went to a place called Ponce Inlet, which is just south of Daytona. There's a little inlet there, and there are fishing boats and things like that that go in and out. And there's a jetty there that protects the inlet from the wave action. There was a man that fishes there on a regular basis. His name is James Church. He was out there fishing just a week or two ago. And while he was out there on the jetty, he got struck by lightning. It didn't kill him. He was actually able to dial 911. And when he told the operator it was been struck by lightning, at first she didn't believe him. Because <laughs> people that get struck by lightning don't survive typically, right? But he described how it took place, and that is it came down, it it hit his fishing pole, came down the pole, entered into his abdomen because he had it stuck in his stomach. It fried a good part of his stomach. They had to take out most of his intestines. And then it proceeded out of him by going up his right arm and blowing off two or three of his fingers. Can you imagine? He attributes his survivor to God, his survival, and to the many prayers of people. But we understand this, that he's experienced something that very few other people ever will, especially people that are struck by lightning. They don't typically survive. he did but he personally knows what it's like to have the fire of heaven fall down upon you do you think his life will be changed drastically by this? I would imagine unbelievably so these 102 men have died a death like that The third captain is fully aware of what has taken place with his predecessors and he comes with a totally different heart and he pleads not only for his own life but for the lives of his men. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Interesting when you note here that the angel of the Lord said this to Elijah. It wasn't God directly, but very often in the Scriptures we find God conveying his message to his messengers through, the, through his angel. So not that unusual. But God now tells Elijah to go. To go with this man. Go to King Ahaziah. And when you go... Do not be in fear because of him. Obviously, Elijah's been waiting for something. He didn't go with the first captain. He didn't go with the second captain. He was waiting. He wasn't waiting for a word from Ahaziah. He was waiting from the word from the Lord. To go. And so God now tells him that. And being the faithful servant that we've seen him to be all through the study. And he has been down through the ages. He does the bidding of his God. And he goes now. I think a fitting application of this would be this, and that is what are you and I to do when we're confronted by the authorities of men? I mean, it's a question that the Bible answers. Jesus even answers this, and he says that what you're supposed to do when it comes to the government is give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Paul and Peter, both of the apostles, encourage us to be submissive to the governing authorities. But does that mean that we're always supposed to do what the authorities tell us to do? We understand that's not true. We understand that we are to be obedient to the authorities to the point that they're not telling us to do something that God forbids us to do or they're, not, they're telling us not to do something that God demands that we do. That there are limitations to it. So just take note here that, that, that Elijah doesn't respond. Until he gets the word from God that this is what I want you to do. Now I want you to go. And so he does. But I want you to notice something that God says to Elijah here, do not be afraid. Do not be in fear of this man. Now why would God say that to Elijah? Because he knows, he knows Elijah's heart. He knows everything that's going through his mind. God knows that Elijah is afraid. He knows that as a human, he has fear in his heart. When I was reading this, I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. And you know, if you know anything about Paul, you know he had all kinds of trials and tribulations. Seems like he got run out of town on a rail after being beat up and banged up just about everywhere he went as a missionary. Just over and over again. And and he came to the to the city of Corinth in Greece. And this was in his second missionary journey, near the end of his second missionary journey, and he suffered a great deal along the way. And he gets there, and we're told that Paul is afraid. And that Jesus appeared to him. And he said to him, Guess what? Do not be afraid. So what are you afraid of? Maybe being burned alive. Maybe you're afraid of yourself. Maybe you're afraid of being rejected by people. Maybe you're afraid of losing your job. Maybe you're afraid of losing your retirement benefits. Maybe you're afraid of this, that, or the other. And the truth is this is every one of us is afraid of something. Maybe you're, you're afraid that your spouse is going to pass away before you do. Or maybe you're afraid that you're going to pass the other way around. There are all kinds of things that can bring fear upon the human heart, right? And as long as there's a vestige of sin in our hearts, and this is true for everybody in this room, you are afraid of something. This is a world that is full of fear. There are a lot of people out there wearing masks to try to demonstrate or show other people that they're not afraid. But let me tell you, every person in this world is afraid, deathly afraid of something. Today, we don't talk about fears, we talk about phobias. Right? I found a list on the internet the other day. There must be a thousand different kinds of phobias that they've they've actually identified at this point. So I'm not going to bore you with that whole list, but I will give you just a few examples of it. There's nauseophobia, which is the fear of knowledge. Can you imagine that someone would be afraid to gain knowledge? Well, if you consider some things today, that's not so hard to, to believe. Pedophobia is a fear of dolls, D-O-L-L-S, pyrophobia, we know what that is. Decidophobia, the fear of making decisions. rophobia. the fear of crossing bridges. Zoophobia, obviously the fear of animals. Alienophobia is the fear of garlic. And here's the granddaddy of them all. I can't even say the word. phobia is the fear of getting peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. Can you believe that there's a word that goes along with that concept? I drive, my jaw hit the table when I read it. How ridiculous have we become? The people are in fear of getting peanut butter stuck to the top of the roof of their mouth. But you know what, guys? We have the answer to all of those fears. Yes, it's the word of Jesus that even though there are all kinds of fears that people have, there really is, for the believer, no reason to fear. No reason to fear death. No reason to fear dolls. No reason to fear crossing high bridges. And certainly no reason to fear having peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth. Those were dear words to the prophet Elijah. Go. And as you go, you don't have to be afraid. He doesn't say it, but he implies it. And the reason you don't have to be afraid is because I am with you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever falls upon you, So Elijah goes with his third captain and his men, and he comes before Ahaziah. And he told Ahaziah this. The Lord says, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his words? You have sent messengers to consult with Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore, you will not leave there from the bed on which you are lying. You will most certainly die. Notice here the same question that, he, that Elijah sent the messengers back to Ahaziah with before. In other words, not the first time that Ahaziah has heard this message. The interesting thing is he didn't answer before and he doesn't answer it now. If I may have a little bit of leeway this morning, what I want to do is just kind of rephrase this question to you. Basically, what's being said here is why would you seek a false God who can do nothing when there is a true and living God who can do all good things? Why would you do that? For what possible, logical, reasonable reason would you give up hope and trust in the true God for a God that doesn't even exist. we talked about the fallacy of idol worship and that is how people do this. They make images of wood and stone and metal and then they bow down to them. How ridiculous can you possibly get? They can't walk, they can't talk, they can't decide, they can't do anything except stand there stiff. And yet people seek after idols, and they're doing it today too.. How many people love automobiles and things like that so much that they don't really have any love left over for God? I mean, how many people today are still in love of gold and silver and diamonds and this that and the other? How many people truly are storing up their treasures in this world? And they're completely forgetting about the true treasure, which is the treasure of heaven. Which surpasses everything else. As a matter of fact, it makes everything else absolutely worthless. As I said before, when people are confronted with questions like this, there's one or two things that always happens. Either they're convicted or they're condemned because they don't respond to it in in the right way, which is conviction. you understand that? That whenever God speaks, those are the only two responses, possible responses, either conviction or non-conviction, and without conviction, it's condemnation. I mean, it's just a measure of the hardness of the heart of people. It's a measure of the hardness of Ahaziah's heart. He will suffer the consequences of his rebellion, his utter and absolute rebellion against the one true God. So Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? God said it. And it happened just like he said it would. Exactly. And Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because he had no son. Again, it happened exactly like God said that it would happen. As I said before, Ahaziah, he was a very short-lived king. He only served for two years. He was a man after his father's heart, Ahab, who as acknowledged in Scripture as being the most wicked, most evil of all the kings of Israel ever. His dynasty began and stopped with him. End a story... Whenever the fears of the world come upon me, sometimes I feel like I'm going to be consumed by those. But I always come back to the fact that God is in control, we in control, hallelujah. Have you heard that? One of the contemporary, One of those nasty contemporary songs that young people are singing today. All over the radio. God is in control. In control. Hallelujah. Can I have an amen? Amen. Amen. The rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, have they not been written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now, you need to understand something. We don't have the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. It was lost in antiquity. It's not referenced to First and Second Chronicles in our Bibles. It's a totally different thing. Isaiah is mentioned here in in Second Kings, or just for this chapter. Basically, he's also mentioned in Second Chronicles, and this is what it says. The one place it even mentions his name. This is what it says about him there. And after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, so became allies. Jehoshaphat of Judah and, and Ahaziah, king of Israel, became allies. He acted wickedly in doing so. That's it, that's his epitaph. What we know of him basically comes from Scripture. There's just about no evidence that this man ever even existed apart from what the Scriptures say about him, and the Scriptures say almost nothing. Not one single good thing is written about this man anywhere. It's the beginning and the ending of his story. What a king. He accomplished nothing. To the good, if he accomplished anything, it was to the bad. It's a sad story indeed, but it's a story that is very common. As a matter of fact, it may be the most common story that's ever recorded in the history of mankind. People come into the world very often and they live their whole life for themselves. They seek after their treasures here. They do terrible, awful, wicked things to other people. They don't listen to what the Lord has to say about anything. They don't care what the Lord has to say about anything. What they care about is their own pride and their own arrogance and their own sense of loftiness. The same story is repeated over and over and over again down through the history of the ages. There have been plenty of people who have rejected the true and living God and His Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the saddest story there is. I mean we hear stories all the time about things that really make us sad when we think about well you know when we, we heard about the fact that Ben and, and Hannah they're having this baby who has major genetic defects and the doctors are telling them even when we, we this is just recent knowledge that there's no way the baby is going to survive period Now can you imagine being parents We've all heard sad stories like that. I'm just going to say this. Just please be praying for Emily. We don't know all the details, but we're pretty sure she's got a heart murmur at this point and maybe some significant health issues. So please be praying for Emily and for Justin and Lindsay in the family. But the message of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand something. It didn't just start going out 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. It's been, it's been part of the message all along. This has been calling of God in every generation for people to come to him. And what have they done? Instead of do that, they've turned their heart, hardened, hardened against him, and they've gone after their idols. It's been, it's been the story over and over and over again for so many in the generations. And maybe at one time or another they've actually heard or or given an ear to something that God said. But with that hearing, conviction didn't come, condemnation came. But hallelujah, God is in control. And if you believe and know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a living example of the power of God at work in a person. You cannot take any credit for it. You can't claim it was because of your greatness or your goodness or because you were really special when it compared to all other people. You are where you are for one reason, and that's because God, in your case, chose to love that which was completely, totally, absolutely unlovable. Wow. What does that do for arrogance and pride? It ushers in the only true humility. And it should be the rule and the law for our lives. In other words, we should think of that particular thing probably more often than anything else, especially when we get into our judgmental stature with other people. See, guys, it's all about grace. Why was Elijah different? He was different because of God's grace. If you're any different... Because of God's grace. Because when you heard His word, convicted.